Jogging Barrett. 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 The Coast Guard's Cottage A Christmas Story Christmas was the last chance for the Coast Guard's Cottage. Amy and I both knew that, even though Mother and Father had never told us in so many words. They had only taken it over in May, and the first summer season had been a long, wet, bitter disappointment. Even in August we'd never been full, and most weeks there had been no guests at all. Christmas, though, promised to be different. Father found the No Vacancies sign in the back of a cupboard, and we all looked forward to the moment when we would hang it in the porch for the very first time. Mother, in particular, threw herself into the preparations. We bought a tree so huge that the top of it bent over where it touched the kitchen ceiling. There was a wreath for the front door and fairy lights for the windows. A crib complete with three kings was arranged on the hall table. There were red ribbons here and tinsel there. No doorway without a sprig of mistletoe and no fireplace without a stocking. And then, with four days to go, the cancellations started coming. First it was the German family, who had taken two bedrooms on the middle floor, then a young couple who had booked for the whole week, and finally an elderly gentleman who had taken the biggest bedroom on the top floor all to himself, which meant we were left with nobody but for two middle-aged Scottish sisters who were on a walking holiday and had booked the twin-bedded room for just the single night of Christmas Eve. With each blow, Father became more depressed, more withdrawn, more monosyllabic. He took each one as a bitter, personal defeat. It was as if he couldn't bear to see the last of his dreams slip through his fingers, and Amy and I certainly couldn't bear to watch it happen. We did our best to keep out of Mother and Father's way in those few days before Christmas, and as they were the kind who wouldn't have a TV in the house, it meant we spent a great deal of our time together on the sofa in the kitchen alcove, reading book after book after book. And that was where we were on Christmas Eve, when the footsteps first came to me. I wasn't sure what they were at first. They were a distant, rhythmic tapping, like someone lightly drumming their fingers on a desk. I held up my hand to indicate to Amy that we should stop reading for a moment, and I closed my eyes. The noise wasn't in the room. No. And it wasn't outside, either. It came from somewhere else entirely, although where that somewhere might be I had absolutely no idea. "'What is it, Stewie?' she asked, tugging at my sleeve. "'Is something wrong?' "'You can't hear anything, can you?' She sat quietly for a moment. "'Only the sea,' she said. "'Why, what can you hear?' "'I'm not quite sure,' I said. The footsteps had faded now. But it was something rather strange. Oh, she said, and pursed her lips in disappointment. You will tell me if you hear it again, won't you? I was eleven, she was nine, and we were still at the stage when we had an almost telepathic brother-sister understanding. They were small things, mostly, guessing what the other one was thinking, or knowing what they were about to say. But looking back... Perhaps the oddest thing was the way we read. We had developed a knack of reading together silently, but at exactly the same speed, 
so we would always arrive at the end of the page at the same moment. There was never a question of waiting for the other to catch up. We experienced the story in just the same way as if we were sitting side by side in a cinema. That was the way we liked to think of it anyway. That evening, we were reading a battered old book we'd found on the shelves in one of the guest bedrooms upstairs. Legends of the Coast. Amy still had her finger on the word where we'd stopped. Shall we carry on? she said. Let's. Dorothy pressed her nose to the window and scanned the horizon for the hundredth time that day. The storm, if anything, was getting worse. It was only mid-afternoon, but the light was already fading. The rain pecked insistently at the glass, and the waves boomed as they crashed against the base of the cliff far below. Oh, well, she said to herself, there's nothing to be done. She clattered down the steep, narrow staircase and stopped on the middle floor to look in on the bedroom at the end. Matilda was only four weeks old, and she was still sleeping peacefully. Dorothy knew she would be. She had only checked on her a few minutes previously, after all. It wasn't that she was an anxious mother. It was simply a way of delaying the moment when she would have to go down to the kitchen to face her husband. She kissed her fingertips and touched them to the baby's forehead. Then she descended slowly to the hallway, pausing to straighten her pinafore before she pushed through the kitchen door. It's just like our house, said Amy. I can picture it all perfectly, every room. I told you it would be, I said. There were lots of these houses at one time, all along the coast. But I think it is about our house, she said. I like that. And she gave me that secret smile of hers. Onwards, she nodded greedily. Thomas had been drinking since well before noon. He had a perfect right, he told her. It was Christmas, after all. And she didn't want to be a killjoy. She wouldn't have begrudged him a few pints of beer. The problem was, he was on the hard stuff. The stuff they warned you against. The stuff that always made her fear him when he had too much of it inside him. He was sitting forward in his chair, staring into the fire with a harsh look on his face. Where have you been? He grunted. Just checking on the little one. Can you pass me the bottle? She sound asleep. The bottle, he repeated, nodding towards the table. Oh, Thomas, don't you think... No, I have not had enough. It's Christmas. Reluctantly, she picked it up and glanced at the label. The writing was in a foreign language. French, she assumed. Where did you get this? It's none of your business. Oh, for goodness sake, Thomas, you're supposed to be a coast guard. You get paid to keep this stuff out of the country. The last thing you should be doing is drinking this filth yourself, Christmas or no Christmas. He lurched sideways in his chair and grabbed the bottle from her. Know your enemy, Dottie, he said with a grin and took a long pull on the liquor. Dorothy shook her head and sighed. Another wave boomed below and the whole house shuddered. I tell you what... I think some fresh air would do us both good, don't you? She said. Shall we go and watch the storm from the turret? Dinner, called Mother from the back of the kitchen. Amy closed the book and we turned to each other. Neither of us was looking forward to this. The atmosphere in the house had been bad enough for most of the week, 
but it had become even worse when Granny and Grandpa had arrived that afternoon. It was no secret that Grandpa had never considered Father a suitable match for his daughter. Even Amy and I knew that, young as we were, and Mother had told him all about the problems with the business. We'd heard her on the phone, which meant that Grandpa had been spoiling for a fight from the moment he'd come through the door. He wasn't going to let this opportunity go to waste, oh no. By the time we sat down at the table, it had already started. Father finished carving the joint of gammon glumly, while Grandpa lectured from the opposite end. The Isle of Thanet. What on earth were you thinking? People stopped coming here for their holidays in the 1960s. We know that, said Mother, but we looked into it very carefully. Things are changing in this part of the world. There's talk of a new fast train. Oh, spare me, said Grandpa. And anyway, what kind of business is running a and b for a couple of bright young people like you? Educated people. And you both had such good jobs in London added Granny, shaking her head and helping herself to a generous dollop of parsley sauce. Father hadn't said a word. The longer it went on, the lower he sank in his chair. His depression hung all around him like a fog. But eventually there was a break in Grandpa's flow and Father roused himself. The thing you forget, Graham, is that we haven't exactly had a lot of luck. Grandpa snorted, switched his fork from left hand to right, and stabbed a boiled potato. That, he said, is spoken like a true loser. You make your own luck in life. Everyone knows that. Grandma patted him on the arm to get him to calm down, but he was having none of it. I had none of your advantages when I started out, he began. I was knocking on doors in all weathers. With respect, said Father, there was a slight tremor in his voice as he struggled to stay in control. With respect, we have heard this all before. Grandpa's eyes widened. Right, he seemed to be thinking. Game on. And then the doorbell rang. Who on earth is that? said Granny. At this time of night. That'll be the sisters, said Mother brightly, getting to her feet. They took a taxi to the Bellevue in Ramsgate for an early dinner. She came back a few minutes later with a puzzled expression on her face. "'Well,' said Father, "'it's a man who says he wants to take the top room for a couple of nights. "'He might have let us know before,' said Father. "'He says he's been coming here every Christmas for years. "'Says he always had an arrangement with Mrs. Reynolds.' "'Mrs. Reynolds?' asked Granny. The woman who had the place before us. He looked quite shocked when I told him she'd passed away at the start of the year. So, said Grandpa, is there some kind of problem with all this? It's, well, Mother turned round to make sure the kitchen door was shut behind her, then leant forward and whispered. I don't really like the look of him. He seems like a rough sort of chap. Oh, come on, said Grandpa. Don't tell me you're going to turn away a paying customer. You get all sorts in a guest house. It comes with the territory. Perhaps I'd better go and see for myself, said Father wearily. Amy and I got down from the table and followed him as far as the doorway into the hall. But there was no one in the porch. Father took a couple of steps outside. Hello, he called. Hello, is anyone there? The waves crashed at the bottom of the cliff below. The wind sighed around the house. 
but there was no response. Well, that is really odd, said Mother, when we were all back at the table. Why on earth would he change his mind like that? Perhaps he was sweet on Mrs. Reynolds, said Granny with a twinkle. I doubt it, said Mother. I'd say he was in his late twenties, and Mrs. Reynolds must have been, what, in her seventies when she died? Well, you never know, said Grandpa. It takes all sorts. And he and Granny laughed like it was the funniest thing in the world. The rest of the meal passed off in almost total silence. There was a sourness in the air from the earlier argument, which made Amy and me itch to get away. When I judged the time was right, I said, Please may we get down from the table? Of course, said Mother. I bet you're both excited about Santa, aren't you? said Granny. Of course we are, Granny, I said dishonestly. And then we scampered from the room. We both knew we should be excited about Christmas Day. It seemed mean and spoiled of us not to be. But we weren't. Mother and father didn't have the money to buy us any decent presents. They'd pretty well told us as much. And although they still persisted with the fiction of Santa coming and filling our stockings, we knew he wouldn't bring much worth having either. No, the reason we were keen to get to bed had nothing to do with Santa Claus. We simply wanted to get back to our story. Amy and I still shared a room, and it was her turn to come into my bed. We snuggled in next to each other and opened the book at the page where we'd left off. Then we grinned at each other in anticipation and resumed. I think some fresh air would do us both good, don't you? she said. Shall we go and watch the storm from the turret? Thomas slumped back in his armchair and sighed. Come on, love, said Dorothy and tugged his hand. With bad grace, he got to his feet, stuffed the bottle of brandy into his coat pocket and followed her up the stairs to the watch room at the top of the house. It had a large oriel window which stuck out high above the footpath below, allowing an uninterrupted view of the entire horizon. Surely you can see all you want from here, he said. No, she said. I told you we could both do with some fresh air. I want to go up to the turret. And she nodded towards the door in the corner of the room. He shook his head as if she was mad, but fumbled for the key in his trouser pocket all the same. Then he lurched over to the door. The moment he'd unlocked it and turned the handle, it flew out of his grasp and slammed against the wall with a crack as the wind suddenly howled into the room. Oh, Jesus, said Thomas. Do we have to? Don't take his name in vain, said Dorothy. Not on his birthday. And she gave him a playful push on the chest. The narrow spiral staircase hummed with a low note like an organ pipe. Come on, let's go up. When they emerged at the top, the wind made them gasp as tiny stinging droplets lashed their faces from all directions. Dorothy shook her head and allowed her long hair to stream out behind her. Isn't this wonderful, Tommy? She shouted above the roar. If you say so. But even Thomas, despite his advanced state of drunkenness, was sobered for the sea bayed and foamed beneath them in a roiling confusion of breakers and backwash, steepling peaks and sudden blasts of spray. The tide was almost at its highest, and the waves hurled themselves at the cliffs below 
with a venom that Dorothy had rarely heard before. What an afternoon, said Thomas, taking another gulp from his bottle of brandy. The two of them stood there for a moment, wedged together in the little turret, gripping the railing and bracing themselves against the gale as they stared out to sea. Just a moment, Dorothy shouted, and she pointed in a southeasterly direction. That's a boat out there, isn't it? The fools, said Thomas. I don't believe it. I finished the sentence and held up my hand. I closed my eyes and concentrated, because the footsteps had come again. I realized what they were this time. They were closer, clearer, louder than they'd been before. Slap, 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 slap. And just for a fleeting moment I saw them, bare feet on a wet pavement. It was dark. The street was empty. Slap, 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 slap. They were a woman's feet, pale and spattered with dirt. And I realized now, of course, she was running. That was the rhythm. And she was coming towards me. I could see the little sprays of water her feet sent up on each impact with the ground. Slap, 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 slap. And then, and then, she faded. I sat in silence for a few moments and turned to Amy. Sorry, Ames, shall we go on? I said. But she was already fast asleep. The whole household was up next day long before any of us wanted to be. The two Scottish sisters had ordered an early breakfast so they could go to church before they set off on their day's hike. They sat in the breakfast room impatiently while mother and father scurried around, frying up a full English as quickly as they could. Granny and Grandpa sat at the big wooden table and watched them. They were already dressed in their finery for the day ahead. Grandpa in a dark blue waistcoat and striped tie, Granny in a high-necked green velvet dress with a double string of pearls. And, as usual, they had those disapproving looks on their faces. You could see exactly what Grandpa was thinking as he watched Mother and Father at work. What kind of losers do this on Christmas morning? But at least he didn't say it. Granny must have had a word with him. When breakfast was done and cleared away, it was time for Amy and me to open our presents from them, as was our tradition. I think you're going to love them this year, said Granny. Of course, Amy and I both already knew what we would get. It was pretty much the same every time. She would get a ghastly doll, even though she'd grown out of them before she'd got to primary school. Oh, amazing, she said as she unwrapped it. I don't have anything quite like it. And I would get an airfix kit, normally the trickiest and most sophisticated that could be found. Wow, I said, revealing the box of a Hawker Hurricane Mark I. I'm going to love doing this. Of course, I didn't have a hope in hell of making it, nor any interest in doing so. But I knew the present wasn't really for me. It was aimed at father, because he wouldn't have a hope in hell either. It was yet another little way that Grandpa had found to make his point. Amy and I sat there for an age, feigning interest in our presence, and then Mother suggested the grown-ups should have coffee, which was a cue for us to slink off to our alcove and return to Legends of the Coast. Just a moment, Dorothy shouted, and she pointed in a southeasterly direction. That's a boat out there, isn't it? The fools, said Thomas. I don't believe it. It was a small boat, a lugger by the look of it, 
although at that distance it was hard to tell, especially with its sails down. Oh dear garden, she's in trouble, said Dorothy. A huge wave crashed over the stern, and the boat reared up as if in terror. It was clear that it was drifting, hopelessly out of control. Do we know the boat? she said. I should hope not. Anyone who puts to sea in weather like this is either insane or they're up to no good. The boat sank out of sight for a moment into a great trough, and was then lifted aloft on the swell. And there are men on board, she said. At least four of them, I would say. Oh, Thomas, you must do something. At that moment, there was a dark puff from the boat, and a few seconds later, a distant crack as a red distress flare exploded in the sky above. Oh, Thomas, they are in trouble. Please do something. And why are you so interested in that damn boat? What do you mean? Why are you so interested? Well, because they're Christian souls, Thomas, the same as we are. Now, for pity's sake, do something. No, he said, and he took her hard by the wrist. Give me the real reason. Why are you so interested in that damn boat? I told you, now let go of me. But he didn't. Instead, he grabbed her other wrist and brought his face close up to hers. You recognize that boat just as well as I do, he said. And don't pretend you don't. At that moment, the front doorbell rang. Can you get that, Stuart? called Mother. Amy marked the place with her finger, and I got to my feet. It was the two sisters back from church. The rain had been hammering down, and the wind was getting up as well. Despite their sensible walking clothes, the two of them were completely drenched. Come in and dry off in front of the fire, called Mother. Thank you, said the younger sister. But I think we'll both go straight up and have hot baths. Good idea. Oh, and there was one thing we wanted to ask, said the older one. We wondered whether we might be able to stay another night. Of course, said Mother. Only there's no way we can walk all the way to Recalver in this, and the forecast for the afternoon is terrible. Absolutely, said Mother. So will you be joining us for Christmas dinner? You'd be most welcome. Thank you, said the younger one, but we brought our own provisions. We'll have them in our room, if you don't mind. Mother smiled, but I could tell she was disappointed. A couple of strangers at the table would have broken up the atmosphere, even strangers as dull as those two Scottish sisters. For the next half hour, Amy and I were set to work, peeling the parsnips and potatoes. When we'd finished, Mother ladled some mulled wine into a couple of glasses. Will you take these up to the sisters, she said. They look like they could do with something to warm them up. I'd tried mulled wine once and thought it tasted foul, but the smell of cinnamon and cloves was intoxicating as we climbed the staircase to the top floor. The sisters, though, didn't seem best pleased to be disturbed. The older one opened the door a crack and eyed us suspiciously. Mother said you should have these, I said. To warm you up, added Amy. Very kind of her, she said curtly. You'd better come in and put them on the dressing table. They were both wearing the white, toweling bathrobes that hung behind the doors in all the guest rooms, and the younger sister was sitting in a chair by the window with her feet in a bowl of steaming water. I couldn't help myself. I stared at them. The feet, I mean. Were those the ones I had seen? Kirsten thought she had a cold coming said the older sister primly by way of explanation. It's an old Perthshire remedy. Oh, I said, and risked another glance across at the pink, wrinkled feet in the bowl. 
No. No, it definitely wasn't them. Enjoy the wine, I said to the sisters, and we both backed out of the room with polite smiles fixed on our faces. Amy started to giggle quietly when we were out on the landing, and I couldn't stop myself joining in. There was something rather comical about those two awkward, earnest women. And then suddenly she pulled herself up. She touched her finger to her ear and pointed at the door opposite the sister's room. It was the one that opened onto the big bedroom with the sea view. There's someone in there, she mouthed at me, and she held her hand up for us to listen. The house shuddered slightly as a wave crashed below. The wind moaned. The windows rattled in their frames. But I could hear nothing else. Amy, however, had definitely heard something, because she nodded at me and then lay down on her front so she could see under the gap at the bottom of the door. She looked up at me and nodded again. I lay down beside her and listened. Was that a floorboard I heard creak inside the room? I put my head on its side to get a better look and thought I glimpsed a shadow move across the skirting board on the other side of the room. It's him, she mouthed at me. He's in there. I knew who she meant. The man from last night. The man who'd rung the bell and disappeared. And then, quite distinctly, we both heard a man's voice. It was no more than a grunt, but it was definitely a man. There was some shuffling, and then a rattle as a hand grabbed the door handle above our heads. We leapt to our feet and fled down the stairs as fast as we could. Neither of us mentioned it over Christmas dinner. It was partly that we were afraid of not being taken seriously, partly that we enjoyed having a little secret, but most of all, I think it was the fear of upsetting the uneasy truce that had settled on the table. Mother had adopted a policy of forced jollity, insisting that we pull crackers and wear paper crowns. Granny collected up the pathetic jokes and read each one out, affecting to find them all hugely entertaining. Grandpa, though, had a smug, distanced air about him, while father glowered morosely from the other end of the table. What little was said during the meal largely concerned the weather. The storm was rising, and the elements were battering the house. Mother and Granny exclaimed over the dreadful rain we'd had this year, the floods, the mud, the summer that never was. Grandpa had a few things to say about the importance of good roofing. Amy and I, and father too, said absolutely nothing at all. Mother was serving the Christmas pudding when the footsteps came to me again. Slap, 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 slap. The sound rapidly swelled to fill my head entirely, and it wasn't just the noise of her feet on the pavement. I could hear her breathing this time. She was panting and muttering to urge herself onwards, and I also realised she was holding up the hem of her long skirt to keep it off the ground as she ran. I closed my eyes, and I could see her feet in extraordinary detail. The flexing of her long toes each time they hit the ground, her cracked toenails, her mud-streaked insteps, the rhythmic white flash of her ankles. Slap, 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 slap. Stuart? Stuart? It was Mother's voice. She had reached across the table and was shaking my arm. Stuart, what is wrong with you? Your grandfather is speaking to you. 
I snapped out of it. I'm sorry. Yes, Grandpa? I was saying that after lunch, perhaps we could make a start on that hawker hurricane. My heart sank. Oh, can we, Grandpa? I said. That would be great. And so, when the table had been cleared, my grandfather and I sat at the coffee table and unpacked the wretched thing, as one by one the others dozed off in their chairs. Amy sat with us for a bit, and then drifted away as well, leaving me alone with the old monster. Thankfully, though, all that soporific turkey did its work, and Grandpa's eyelids started to droop before we'd got through the second page of the instructions. I waited till I was sure he was properly asleep, and then I crept quietly over to the sofa, and the legends of the coast once again. I knew I should wait for Amy to come back. It was an unspoken agreement that neither of us would read ahead in a story, and it was an agreement I had never broken before. But this time, for some reason, I did. I just couldn't help myself. He grabbed her other wrist and brought his face close up to hers. You recognize that boat just as well as I do, he said. And don't pretend you don't. It's Alaric Jobson's boat, isn't it? She tried to pull back from the alcoholic reek of his breath. Let go of me, Thomas. You're hurting me. You know full well it's his boat. That's the reason you spent most of the day staring out to sea, well, isn't it? Don't talk nonsense. You see, I know what they say about you and him in the town. I don't know what you're talking about, Thomas. You two have been sweethearts for years, since long before I was on the scene. And the truth is, you still are. Well, isn't it? Of course not, Thomas. You're drunk. That's the only truth that matters here. Oh, and I know what they say about that brat downstairs as well. Thomas, who are you talking about? I am talking about a brat downstairs. Surely you're not talking about your own precious daughter? She's no more mine than that damn boat out there is. You're not just drunk, Thomas. You're stupid. Matilda is ours. You know she is. There was a sob in Dorothy's voice now. I, I believe I am stupid to put up with you and your goings-on all this time. Dorothy suddenly slipped her right hand from his grasp, drew her arm back, and slapped him across the face with all her might. His head cannoned back into the wall behind, and just for a second he appeared dazed. Then he took a step to his left to block the entrance to the staircase and tensed his arms and shoulders. Oh, Dotty, you made a mistake to raise your hand against your husband. Now, Thomas... Oh, Dotty, you made a mistake. And he lunged for her. On the other side of the room, Mother awoke with a start and looked around. Where's Amy? she said. Stuart, where's Amy? I looked up from the book. I'm not sure. She was here a few minutes ago. I was just having this strange dream about her. She got up, went out into the hallway and called. Amy? Amy? Where are you, love? I heard her start to climb the stairs and returned my attention to the book. He took her by the shoulders and forced her against the railing so that her back was arched over the drop beneath. Now, said Dorothy, trying to stay calm, don't do anything stupid, Thomas. He thrust his face into hers so that their noses touched and his blazing bloodshot eyes glared deep into her own. Thomas, please. Her breath had started to come in short, sharp gasps. She was hideously aware of the drop behind her, 
first onto the narrow ribbon of footpath. And then... No, it didn't bear thinking about. Tell me the truth, Dotty. Thomas's voice was saying. Tell me the truth! But Dorothy could now think of nothing but the plunge to the rocks more than a hundred feet below. Mother hurried back into the room, shouted something, and shook Father awake in his armchair. Oh, my God, she said, and tugged at his hand. You have to come. There's a door. Father was groggy. What are you talking about? A door in the big bedroom on the top floor. What? I was looking for Amy, and I went in there, and there's a door in the corner where there never was before. Father was more awake now. Don't be ridiculous. She tugged his hand again. But there is. Come and see for yourself, please. I was suddenly aware of the footsteps again. Slap, 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 slap. But I needed to ignore them. I needed to concentrate on what was happening around me. Father stood up. Granny and Grandpa were awake as well now. What the hell is going on? said Grandpa. Mother started to explain, and then the sisters appeared in the kitchen doorway. Do you have a new guest? said the older one. Mother and Father looked at each other. No, said Mother. Slap, 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 slap. The footsteps were getting close now. I could tell. Because we just met a young man on the top landing, the sister continued. No, we thought we'd better mention him because, well, because we didn't like the look of him. Oh, my God, said Mother, a note of panic rising in her voice. And have you seen Amy? Well, yes, said the older sister. Just a little while ago, she said she was going to watch the storm. What? I said. She said she was going to watch the storm? Yes, I think she said she was going to watch it from the turret. No, I said. No! The footsteps were pounding now, really pounding, louder than I had ever heard them before, and I could hear her breath coming in great, heaving gulps, as if she was beyond despair, beyond exhaustion. Mother's lips moved, but I could no longer hear what anyone else was saying. I clutched my hands to the sides of my head and rocked from side to side with the rhythm of the terrible, terrible, pounding feet. Mother moved towards me and reached out her hand. And then, suddenly, the footsteps came to an abrupt halt. I looked about me, totally bewildered. A fraction of a second later, something slammed against the front window of the kitchen with an almighty crash. We all turned and saw... The pasty white face of a young woman, her nose pressed up against the glass. She beat at the window with the heel of her palm and shouted something that we couldn't hear. What is the meaning of this? said Grandpa, getting to his feet. Does anyone know her? He strode across the room and pulled the curtains closed with a jerk. Almost immediately, the woman's face appeared at the next window. Once again, she clawed at the pane, shouting something over and over. Grandpa tried to dismiss her with a flick of his hand, but she hammered on the glass even harder. What on earth does she want? said Mother. I think she's here to... to help, I stammered. Nonsense, said Grandpa. The woman's clearly mad. And he tugged the curtain shut on her again. For a moment, no one knew quite what to do. And then Mother raised her hands in alarm and said, Oh my God, the kitchen door isn't locked. The door was at the far end of the room. Well, do something! roared Grandpa. Father was the one standing closest. Lock the bloody door, you fool! But Father didn't move. He stood there, and a tear rolled down his cheek. It was as if he had cracked, as if he was completely overwhelmed. Oh, for heaven's sake, 
said Grandpa, and he took a pace towards the door himself. But it was too late. The door burst open, and the woman staggered into the room, breathing heavily. She was soaking wet, her hair hanging in lank rat's tails, the dark, heavy material of her long dress clinging to her. She looked wildly around at us and took another step forward. And as she did so, she lifted the hem of her dress off the ground, exposing her bare, white feet, the long toes caked in dirt, just as I had seen them. Is she with you? she whispered. What are you talking about? said Mother. Is she with you? Is she safe? You mean Amy? I said. Mother was just looking for her. No! wailed the woman. No, no! This is not meant to be! It is I! I am the one who must watch the storm from the turret! And she ran towards the doorway that gave onto the hall. Grandpa tried to block her way, but she fainted to go left, and as he shifted his weight, she skipped past him on the other side and raced up the stairs. Well, don't just stand there! Grandpa yelled at Father. Go after her! Father looked from him to Mother, tears in his eyes, still utterly confused. Go, said Mother. Father took a few paces across the room and then bounded up the narrow staircase two at a time. The whole house seemed to shake with his efforts. And then, for one eerie moment, things went still. The wind inexplicably dropped. The roar of the sea seemed oddly distant. We looked at each other. Mother, Granny, Grandpa, the sisters, me. Our eyes were wide, every muscle in our bodies tense. The rain dripped from the eaves, the water gurgled in the downpipes. Something was coming. Something was about to happen. We could all sense it. And then, it did. There was a long, high-pitched, blood-curdling scream, and then... An awful, sickening thud on the path outside. Oh, my God, said Mother, and she put her hand to her mouth. A moment later, <coughs> there was another anguished cry, and then, once again, a terrible, heavy thud. No, said Mother, in a stricken whisper. I darted over to the front window and pulled the curtains back just in time to see something, a dark shape of some kind, roll off the edge of the path and disappear over the edge of the cliff. Does anyone understand what is going on? said Granny. We found Father on his knees in the top bedroom, tears streaming down his face, hugging Amy to him as tightly as he could. There was no sign of the woman in the long dress, no sign of the strange man, no sign of the door in the corner of the room that Mother had seen. Oh, my God, are you all right, Amy? asked Mother. Oh, my God, my darlings, are you both all right? Amy stood there, strangely impassive, a faraway look in her eyes. Father got to his feet, and Amy clung tightly to his hand. What happened? said Mother. Father opened his mouth to speak, and then shook his head, as if he couldn't find the words. 
Grandpa started to say something, but Granny tapped his arm to shut him up. Then Amy looked at me and gave me her secret smile before turning to the others. There is something I have to show you, she said quietly. Come with us. We all followed her and father down the stairs to the middle floor, and then they turned and walked hand in hand along the landing to the little bedroom at the end, the one we never used. Do you have the key, father? Amy asked. He fumbled in his pocket for a moment, then unlocked the door and pushed it open. We all crowded round and peered inside. Mother gasped, because there, in the middle of the room, was a sturdily built, old-fashioned, wooden cradle. She pushed her way into the room, bent over it, and stood up with something in her arms. It was wrapped in a long, white, woolen shawl. What was it? Some kind of doll? She rocked it gently for a moment, and then held it out for father to see. He stared. He blinked and stared and rubbed his eyes. Incredible, he whispered. An astonished expression of joy slowly spread across his features, and a smile broke out on his face for the first time in longer than Amy and I could remember. There was a slight movement beneath the shawl, and a little pink leg emerged. It kicked a couple of times. The baby gurgled for a moment, and then started to whimper. The little one's hungry, said one of the sisters. We can see to that, I think, said Mother, and turned to face us with a smile as broad as Father's. And do you know what? I think that even Granny and Grandpa realised that something rather wonderful had occurred. We sold the Coast Guard's cottage that spring and moved back to London. We rented a house in Bromley in the southeastern suburbs and mother and father both found themselves the kind of jobs that even Grandpa couldn't disapprove of. And when we had all settled in, they had the baby christened Natasha because apparently it means born at Christmas. But Amy and I knew better. Much to their puzzlement, we always insisted on calling her Matilda. She's a successful corporate lawyer now, married with a couple of kids of her own. But that is the name she still uses to this day. The Coast Guard's Cottage was written by Elgin Barrett and performed by Glenn McQueen. Technical presentation was by Malcolm Blackmore and music by John Wallace.